You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Good morning. It is really, really good to be with you and to open the scriptures together. Special hello to you if you are joining us from one of our sites this morning. I believe that we are streaming more or less live to our family in Aberdeen Central, Aberdeen North, Ellen, Peterhead and Inverurie and also our online community. And if you're in any one of those places, why don't you give us a great big cheer? Yeah, we can't hear you, but nice that you did that anyway. I'm believing that you did. Um, so my father-in-law worked in construction for his whole working life. And one of the jobs that he had was um, to build new council houses, move people into them, and then demolish their old houses. And, and uh, one day he's walking down a street that is uh, destined for demolition, and he sees an elderly lady kneeling in the front garden. And he thinks, that's really strange. I wonder what she's doing. Is she praying or what is, what's happening? As he gets closer towards her, he can see exactly what she's doing. She's gardening. She's, you know, removing dead leaves and she's removing the weeds from around the plants and she's watering the plants and all these kinds of things. And he thinks, the poor lady, she she's must be confused. She doesn't understand what's about to happen to her house. And so he... And this is exactly the kind of guy that he is. He knelt down in the garden next to this lady and he tried to explain. He said, I'm so sorry, maybe you don't understand. This house will be demolished next week. And she said, quick as a flash, oh, I know that, dear. But the day that I stop tending to my plants and my flowers is the day that I die. It just feels for me in this moment that there's an invitation to each one of us to tend to our inner world with Jesus in a deliberate and intentional way. You know, all around us is chaos, destruction, difficulty. It's a very strange time to be alive. And it seems to me that the invitation from God by his spirit to us as a church family right now is to focus on our inner life, our inner pilgrimage with Jesus. It's one of the reasons why, and I'm really excited about it. For the first time in several years, we're just going to take this season in the run-up to Easter. We've got about 10 weeks to go, something like that, just to journey with Jesus to the cross. That's why we've called this series Last Words. It's the final words of Jesus in John's Gospel in the run-up to his crucifixion and resurrection. And the invitation is that as Jesus walks towards his cross we walk towards us and we begin to put to death some parts of ourselves that need to die. Or as Jesus walks in obedience to the call of God on his life, we make a choice, a decision to walk with obedience towards our own call. Or as Jesus cries out to his Father in heaven with the concerns and anxieties that he has, we begin to cry out to the same Father, our Father in heaven, with our concerns too. That's the journey that I believe we're on as a church family in this season. And I just would urge you, encourage you to join us, to, to just choose to tend to our inner world with Jesus, our inner walk with him. 
And so we're in John chapter 12 this morning, which I'm really excited about, but we're going to start first of all in Daniel chapter 7, uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel is really a book of two halves. The two halves are really different. The first half, the first six chapters, are what we would call historical narrative, I suppose. It's, uh, it's telling the story of Daniel and his friends living in exile in Babylon. It's a really sad backdrop to the book of Daniel. He's, uh, uh, the, the Babylonians have conquered the people of God and they've, they've captured them and they've taken the people of God out of the promised land and into exile and slavery in Babylon. Uh, and so um, uh, not only have they been removed from the land of promises, the promised land, they've also been removed, therefore, from what is in the land, which is the temple. And at the heart of the temple is the Ark of the Covenant, which is shaped like a throne. So this is the dwelling place of God. So the Babylonians have removed them from their land, but they've also removed them, in a sense, from God, from his presence. And it's a terribly sad situation. And, and so the first six chapters are Daniel and his friends just coming to terms with the new world that they find themselves in and refusing to bow down to the Babylonian gods. And because of that, you know, and if you were ever in Sunday school, you might have heard these stories, you know, they're thrown into the fiery furnace and they're, they're protected by the Lord and then they're thrown into the lion's den and it's just a terribly dark and difficult time. And so by chapter 7, I guess Daniel's exhausted and so he goes to bed and in his sleep, God speaks to him in these dreams, a series of prophetic dreams that, that, that kind of um, encapsulate the aching and the longing and the prophetic expectation of the people of God. And so in Daniel chapter 7, the first of these dreams, uh, he, he dreams about this series of four beasts that, that come out of the sea and he understands that these beasts are the empires uh, and the kind of global superpowers, the, the dark forces of the world that come one after the other. As soon as one goes, the next one comes, and there are four of them. And uh, we think now that those represent the Babylonian Empire, followed by the Persian Empire, followed by the Mesian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire. And it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty dark vision. But then the good news comes. In chapter 7, verse 9, he says, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God. His, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And so Daniel saw prophetically that even though God's people would be overpowered by relentless series of, of different superpowers, eventually God, the sovereign Lord, would come as the judge of the whole earth. Did you notice anything about the throne? The throne had fiery wheels. In other words, it wasn't rooted and built into a temple in Jerusalem. It was roaming the earth. 
And then he goes on in verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So this is Daniel in his dream, seeing that one day the final beast would be conquered in a split second by the Lord. And then as the final and ultimate act of, of conquest and judgment, he sees that on that day would appear a hero of the hour. And the hero of the hour, uh, who seems to have been present and active in this moment of conquest and defeat uh, and judgment over the nations, is the Son of Man. Verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here is the son of man. The Hebrew is Ben Adam, Ben Adam. He's, he's a, a human man who is executing judgment and conquest over the nations and he's doing uh, uh, all the kinds of things that God often does. You know, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's totally human. But in the same way, mysteriously, he also seems to be divine and he's worshipped as such. And so in that moment, thousands upon thousands of people gather around the throne and their worshippers. And, and they'll be from every nation and every tribe and every ethnic group on the face of the earth. So that's Daniel's prophetic dream, that even though God's people are um, overpowered uh, and even though the, the dark forces of the world seem to have absolute um, power over them and they feel powerless and they're at their mercy, there will come a time when the Son of Man will come and he will defeat their, uh, every one of those forces in the blink of an eye. It will be a moment of total judgment and total conquest and his kingdom will never end. And then 600 years later, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, and he's hailed, you know, hail the, the king of Israel, hail the king of the Jews, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in the passage that we're about to read in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Jesus is saying the prophetic longing and expectation of Daniel is being fulfilled in this moment. The cross and the resurrection are, are the definitive moment of conquest and judgment. It starts now. Let's read our passage. John chapter 12. That was the world's longest introduction, but never mind. The, point, the points are fairly short. Uh, chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. And then we'll, for the sake of time, we'll just skip down to verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And that's our text for today. So less than a week before his crucifixion, Jesus explains in language clearly, specifically drawn from the prophet Daniel. He explains what's about to happen at the cross, the true meaning of the cross. And there are many things that we could draw from this passage. I just want to draw a few. And it's really this, that the cross is the definitive act of judgment and conquest for the whole world. Let's just break that down in the few minutes that we have left. First of all, the cross is for the whole world. It's for the whole world. This section of teaching is, is quite strange. When you, when you actually look at it, it's quite strange because it comes um, as a response to these Greeks who have come to ask to, to meet Jesus. And rather than just saying, oh yeah, just wheel them in, or I'd be very happy to meet with them or something like that, he gives them this slightly um, uh, uh, complex answer as a result and what actually seems to be happening is that that this is a moment where where you know ordinarily it would be Jews and Samaritans who are coming to hear what Jesus has said this is a, a different moment this is foreigners coming this is people of other tribes tongues nations coming to hear what Jesus has got to say and it's it's almost like it's the starting gun Jesus is like this is it this is what I've been waiting for this is the moment that's been prophesied you know ever uh, leading up to this moment John tells us several times Jesus's hour had not yet come that comes in chapter 7 verse 30 and also chapter 8 verse 20 so Jesus time has not come it's not come it's not come these uh, foreign visitors, people with other tongues, they come and, and, and then Jesus says, the hour has now come. And so Jesus sees the cross as the beginning of the fulfillment of what's been expected, that people from other nations would gather around him and focus on him. Uh, and from this moment, it only ever increases. You know, you think from this moment, it's, you know, it's just a handful of Greeks come, but then on the day of Pentecost, there's loads of people from different nationalities come and they all hear the gospel in their own languages and a whole bunch of them surrender their lives to Jesus. And then following on from that, you see, uh, when the persecution comes, uh, they're, they're, God's people are scattered around the surrounding nations and people are bowing the knee in all of those places too. And, and it kind of just builds and builds and builds from this moment until at one point in the future, uh, you know, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And in, in the book of Revelation, you have the lamb at the center of the throne with people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping him. And so it's as if the cross uh, and everything it achieves for the whole world and everything in it, uh, you know, is, is being communicated in this moment. And so my point is, if, if the cross 
is for the whole world, then that definitely and certainly means that it's also for me and for you. It's a totally inclusive worldwide event. When I was a kid, a kid I, I was really looking forward to going to secondary school because I was looking forward to the idea of sport. I liked the idea of sport. And all we'd ever done in primary school was kick around, uh, you know, like one of those sponge balls. And so it was like completely harmless. On my first day, uh, we had PE and we played rugby and the ground was rock hard. And then, but also in places, just really gloopy mud. And they said, what we want you to do is to, to throw yourself onto the rock-hard ground, which was also gloopy, muddy, and we want you to kind of reach your arms around people who are then kicking you in the face and, uh, you know, uh, try and bring them down. And I was like, this does not look like fun. And then you, I don't even want to tell you what they used to do to you in the middle of the scrum. Like, and I was like, to be honest, this isn't for me. Um, I made a decision pretty early on. Then in the summer term, we switched from rugby to cricket. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fine. I've played cricket before. No, no, no. I didn't realise. You know, I'm like, so let me get this straight. They're going to throw a rock-hard heavy ball directly at me. And all I'd ever experienced before was those sponge balls. I was like, no, I'm sorry, guys. This is not for me. And then a little bit later on, and this maybe tells you something about the school I went to, but... Uh, they said, oh, you don't really like field sports. How about you try rowing? And so I'm thinking like nice big flat rowing boat that's like really stable. No, no, it's like this long thin boat that if you even sneezed, it capsized. And I decided again, guys, this is not for me. And in some ways, isn't that the journey of life? So many of us feel like outsiders, like this is not for me. I'm not being included. I'm not... Like, we're experiencing life as a series of moments of alienation or isolation. So many of us feel like outsiders, and yet that's the very opposite of the gospel. The cross is the ultimate demonstration that you are included. You know, so often, even in faith, we can feel like, I'm not sure I'm really on the inner track of this. It's a lie. It's a lie. I don't know whether you know Jesus this morning, but if you don't, can I urge you, the cross is for you. For those of us who do know Jesus, again, can we just hear that? The cross is for you. The cross is for the whole world. Point number two is the cross is an act of judgment. When I was at school, we loved it when the teacher didn't appear for the lesson. And so uh, I remember one time Reverend Evans didn't arrive for the RE lesson, which was a joy right up until the point where it wasn't. My friend Gareth, who was about eight foot tall, decided that he was going to, I was going to give him a piggy bank, a piggy bank, piggy back. And so he jumped on my back and he was riding me around the classroom and I was buckling under the weight. And then my other b bigger friends jumped on the backs of my other smaller friends. And, and so we were being ridden and we, it was like horse races up and down the classroom and it was not fun. Lots of people were having fun, but I was not having fun. And then uh, we hadn't seen, but the headmaster walked into the room and he walked towards the teacher's desk really quietly and he picked up one of those great long meter rulers and he banged it down on the desk and there was a, a, 
a, a load of chalk dust on the desk. And so suddenly there's this enormous plume of smoke and this loud peal of thunder. And through the smoke and the thunder comes the headmaster. And there was justice and judgment, uh, which is brilliant. The point is, aren't we all longing for a day of judgment? Like we learn really on in our lives that life isn't fair, that bad things happen to good people, that people who have evil intent often seem to get away with murder. The world we live in is not fair. And we long for a day when it would become fair. And of course, that's the Old Testament longing, the Old Testament expectation that one day there would be a day of judgment. One day at the end of time, God would enact judgment on the world. And uh, in our passage, you, you know, first of all, in, in, in Daniel, you have that vision of the heavenly courtroom and, and um, the Ancient of Days is seated on, seated on this throne, which is, uh, has wheels on it. And he says, thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So this is the, the day of judgment at the end of time. And in our passage in John's Gospel, in the days before the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus says, that day of judgment starts now. You'll see it there in verse 31. Now is the time of judgment on this world. What he's saying is that the cross is the enacting of judgment on the world. It's what the prophets couldn't fully see. The prophets just always thought it would be one day at the end of time. Whereas Jesus' explanation of the cross tells us that the cross is the day of judgment crashing into the present. The future judgment begins but isn't consummated until the end. I say all of that to say this, that, that for anyone who's placed their trust in Jesus, our judgment has already taken place. And so when we stand before, the, before God on the day of judgment, at the end of all days, we'll discover that another day of judgment 2,000 years ago has already been marked to our account. George Eldon Ladd, who was a theologian who hugely influenced the early vineyard leaders, he wrote this, for those who believe Judgment has in effect taken place and they've been acquitted and found righteous. The final judgment will in reality be an execution of the decree that has already been passed. So if you've placed your trust in Jesus, the point is that your salvation is utterly secure. The judgment has taken place, the sentence has been passed, and the punishment has been carried out. There is nothing that could happen, have happened yesterday, or today, or tomorrow, that could change the fact that the, uh, uh, the full judgment of God has been completed. It's been completed. The cross is the moment of judgment. Finally, the cross is the definitive moment of conquest. So Daniel and his friends, they're living at, this, at the mercy of these, these powers uh, and the full weight of the Babylonian empire is upon them. And in his dreams, 
he prophetically sees that even though these empires and these forces seem to last forever, actually they never do. There's always one that comes after it, and one gives way to another until the day when the Son of Man will conquer all the dark powers for all time, and his uh, reign will last forever. And, uh, and what we saw, of course, is that Jesus said, that happens now. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So the fantastic news is that while Jesus is speaking about something that's about to happen for him, for us it happened 2,000 years ago. He conquered the powers of death and darkness for all time 2,000 years ago. And so... What that means is that's really important because there's no longer any power or, or force of darkness, any temptation or destructive cycle, any oppressive human or, oppression, human or otherwise, that Jesus hasn't already defeated.